Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the November 2023 edition of State of Distress Debt. We are part of the Fick Focus podcast series, and we focus on the U.S. stress, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I am your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brendel, each of Bloomberg Intelligence, well, as am I. Uh, before diving in, we do like to ask that if you like what we're doing with Fick Focus, please do take a moment to follow, comment, and share, as that helps us to keep bringing great guests and content to you. In this episode, Nagisa sits down with Emily Myers. Emily is the General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer over at Electric Capital. Uh, Electric Capital, if you don't know, is a global venture capital firm investing in early stage Web3 companies and protocols. So very interesting conversation. Stay tuned for there. But first, as we always do, Phil, over to you. You know, in October, we got a little bit of that volatility that we had been missing in high yield. Uh, with the index lower by about 1%, spreads wider, some deteriorating technicals, et cetera. Ignoring for a moment maybe the face-ripping rally that we've gotten uh, to start November. Uh, Did you see anything in October that really altered your market view at all? No, I was sort of relieved that it finally did start selling off and that we, uh, you know, that their distressed uh, supply did fall you know, jump back into the range that it's been occupying for a little over a year. Um, distress ratio went from 6.8% at the end of September to 7.9% at the end of October. And, you know, I'll just note that that is performing distressed. Those are bonds that, you know, are still paying coupons as of the beginning of the month. Um, and so, uh, oddly enough, two of our best performers in that, uh, index were Rite Aid and Acumen, both of which filed during the month. So it's kind of, <laughs> you, do, you do have some odd, uh, odd occurrences like that. Um, healthcare is still the leading sector in terms of contributing distressed communications and tech are uh, a little bit further behind. And, you know, we just saw Lumen, I guess there was a yep. big uh, debt transaction that happened uh, just recently. So, um, you know, they're, they're, well, has it has it closed yet, or is that something that they're trying to achieve? Because uh, I, I guess my reading was that uh, it's still going to be maybe a little bit of a contest in front of it, but certainly ha- that hasn't been an issue for getting those things done in the past. There was definitely um, they definitely have some support, um, but as as are you know with most of these things, uh, you know, there's people who went under the tent, they sign up first, and then but they you typically need other people to join them. Um, so, you know, m- more to come on that. Uh, and then uh, I think what was interesting too, was it really was the back half of the month, October, it, where everything just sort of fell apart because, you know, when we did our mid month snapshot, uh, things were really relatively unchanged. So, um, you know, my outlook going for- forward is I really think we're due for a bout of risk off. Uh, and, you know, we know what that feels like uh, when people just kind of run to liquidity. And uh, given that we defied seasonals over the summer, 
I wouldn't be surprised if we defy positive seasonals as we go towards year end. And I wouldn't be surprised if the lack of liquidity that we encounter every year as we go into the end of the market, uh, we we see that again. Yeah, I mean, so, it'll be interesting to watch because we've gotten a little bit of a panic bid here to, to start November where, I mean, everything has just gotten bought, anything that has a coupon anyway, uh, led by treasuries, obviously, because the, the quarterly refunding announcement had fewer coupon issuance from the treasury. And then the Fed maybe a little bit more dovish, depending on who you listen to uh, in the latest FOMC. So people are sort of taking that as a little bit of an all clear to to pick up rates. And obviously that's bleeding into pretty much anything uh, uh, that has a duration or pays a coupon. So it'll be interesting to see how long that sort of momentum lasts. We've moved pretty aggressively here already. Uh, but any other thoughts in terms of in terms of as we start to look ahead, maybe a little bit uh, cast a half an eye towards 2024? I just I, I think we're going to, you know, I've I really am of the belief that we're going to see this distress ratio and distress supply increase significantly. I don't think it's going to be the rapid surges that we've seen, you know, that that is more often the case. Uh, I think it's going to be a steady climb higher. I think in the near term, we're definitely going to test the highs. Uh, the distress ratio high for this cycle has been 10.7 percent. I wouldn't be surprised if. Uh, we clear that and uh, and and it continues. I think there's a lot of disturbing things going on in the world. You know, obviously the Middle East is a mess, and uh, you know that really hasn't impacted the the global markets. Um, and then there's other things out there that you know just gives me worries that we're going to have uh, you know one of those crises where uh, uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, lack of confidence in institutional in institutional investment, uh, uh, in, I guess institutions. So um, anyway, <laughs> there you go. It's a little bit of a tongue twister there. So uh, before we turn to your conversation, Nagisa, I do want to bring you in here. Phil sort of alluded to the the right aid trade, right aid transaction. Boy, Phil, it's, it's bleeding off on me here. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and I know we're going to dig in a little bit there, but I guess through the courts and, and sort of uh, bankruptcy in general, anything that sort of uh, stuck out to you or, or whatnot in October? So I think um, the Rite Aid filing was interesting, obviously. I think two things about it. The first was uh, we continue to see interesting dips with the very substantial roll-ups. I mean, out of $3.25 billion dip, only t- there was only a t- only 200 million of that was new money. So that puts a lot of pressure on these companies to get out of bankruptcy quicker. In particular, Rite Aid, I think we're going to talk about it later too, but there's this kind of threat of administrative insolvency and you kind of can see that from the very beginning of the case, which is um, not a not a very common worry, but also not surprising right, for what we've seen before in this uh, uh, bankruptcies that have a very... Uh, big uh, retail component um other than that i mean we will we've con- we'll continue we've continued to see this up tier transactions getting tested in court we're going to talk a bit about Incora also later on and you mentioned lumen just a few minutes ago so um they're kind of getting tested in the courts particularly in bankruptcy courts uh, as well as outside of it but now we're being we we continue we're continuing to see them getting tested uh, within the bankruptcy courts Interesting. So we'll save some of that for later. But first, let's go ahead and turn to your conversation with Emily. 
We are very happy to have with us today Emily Myers to talk about crypto in the distress space and beyond. Emily is the General Counsel and Chief Compliance Officer at Electric Capital, which is a global venture capital firm investing in early-stage Web3 companies and protocols. Prior to joining Electric Capital, Emily was Deputy General Counsel at Paxos and Associate General Counsel at WeWork, where she built and led major global legal and compliance initiatives. Earlier in her career, she was an enforcement attorney at the Federal Election Commission and a senior associate at Wilmerhill. Emily, thank you for being here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with some background on Electric Capital. So maybe tell us about your team, their expertise, and what you're typically looking for in investments. Sure. So Electric Capital was founded in 2018 in a somewhat accidental way. Our founders are very crypto native and were exploring crypto for their own side projects and quickly became experts. And in the 2018 bull run, due to their involvement in the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship community, they got a lot of inbound requests to understand better how crypto worked. And then they realized that there was an opportunity for them to um, take outside capital and invest in founders in the crypto space. And so from the beginning, Electric was really set up a bit differently than other types of more traditional venture capital firms. So with the thesis that software is eating all other types of businesses, capital markets are no exception. And so if software is eating capital markets, then venture capital firms should also look more like software companies. So the overwhelming majority of the members of the team are software engineers, builders, and entrepreneurs. And we think that this helps us better identify really exciting investment opportunities, and then really help to collaborate with and support founders in the electric portfolio to be able to maximize success within the ecosystem. So what stage of the investment life cycle do you usually come in? Electric focuses on very early stage, pre-seed, seed, series A. And the thought there is we can best help founders realize their vision at that early stage. And we can provide technological expertise, whether that's um, spinning up a validator node or helping them to bootstrap liquidity in their protocol and help to create potential network effects across different companies within the portfolio whose businesses could potentially be complementary. So it's probably a loaded question, but how do you avoid the pitfalls of risky investments in this space? I'm sure it's not a question that's easy to answer quickly, but let's give it a try. Sure. The crypto space certainly is very volatile. It is not for the faint of heart. And at the early stage, we're focused on ideas and founders. And it's hard to know ultimately which idea is going to win. 
or which team is going to be the best one to execute. But we try and really get under the hood with respect to if there is any code, um, how the protocol actually operates and what type of security audits they've done. But to the extent that it's just an idea, there often isn't a whole lot of hard data to diligence or corporate records to diligence in that traditional way. And so a lot of the investment decisions are based on the crypto native expertise of members of the team. And we're fortunate to have some of the best experts in the world, whether it's on DeFi or NFTs or various other aspects of crypto protocols that we think can hopefully add value to investors as well as particularly to founders. And that really is our guiding star. We really want to provide services for founders. So on that, so to a degree, if any, um, does the retail nature of crypto would you say impacts your job? So makes it different perhaps as compared to less consumer facing enterprises? Sure. And we invest up and down the stack. So some of that is intra, some of that is retail facing, and some of it is other different kinds of privacy protocols and different sort of protections. And I think what makes investing in crypto unique because of that retail aspect is the way in which crypto is regulated. And there's a lot of question and a lot of development in the crypto regulatory space. And it's a highly regulated space around the world, but across all different types of financial regulation. So whether that's as securities, commodities, banking and payments, it is it is that aspect that it could reach retail customers that influences the degree to which it is regulated. And that regulation has a real impact on how founders are designing their protocols and products and how they are thinking about the the jurisdiction and different markets that they want to focus on um, to the extent that they touch financial services. Now, there are some crypto projects, including some in which Electric has invested, that are totally distinct from any sort of financial services use case and so are not subject to that kind of financial services regulation. But while a lot of um, crypto protocols do touch some kind of either payments or financial services regulation, that becomes a real focus of, of founder um, attention as they're developing their go-to-market strategy. So I want to take the conversation maybe to crypto bankruptcies to try to explore how they've impacted the industry as a whole. Um, starting in 2022, there, there are, of course, outliers, cred, 
file for bankruptcy in 2020, for example. But in 2022, uh, a number of crypto companies started filing for Chapter 11, uh, famously starting with Voyager and Celsius in July of 2022, and then followed by BlockFi and, of course, FTX in November. Um, as always, reasons for each bankruptcy are complex, but there's also no denial that there's some strong interconnectivity here between exchanges and lenders, for example. Uh, in many ways, this wave of bankruptcies was kickstarted by Terraform Labs and the Three Arrows meltdown. What impact do you think this string of bankruptcies has had in the overall industry? What lessons have they provided in your view? I think from a retail perspective, there have been two material effects that have had broader rippling throughout the industry. So one is just because a lot of retail customers ended up being harmed or losing funds, that in turn, point two, really energized the regulators to come in and see what from a retail investor protection mechanism they could implement. And that's on a global basis, not only within the United States. And those two things together that increased regulatory pressure as a result of the retail investor harm, I think has made it a much more challenging for founders to continue to build and innovate in light of the regulatory pressure, but also regulatory uncertainty. Because especially in the United States, there's much more of an reg regulation by enforcement right now, as opposed to mapping out clear rules of the road for founders and innovators to build and architect the, the next generation of financial market infrastructure and technology and related products. So not surprisingly, I wanted to explore the FTX effect in a bit more detail. Um, I imagine in the lead up to FTX's failure, there was a sense of momentum and progress from a regulatory and commercial perspective. Um, can you take us back then what that looked and felt like, uh, but also bring us back to today to see how that momentum have changed for better or worse, I guess, uh, during the course of, uh, I guess, 12 months now. Sure. So it was almost exactly a year ago um, that- Yes, it was. Just a little bit less, yeah. <laughs> that, that this all came crashing down. So even though the summer of 2022, the late spring and, and summer of 2022 had been a bit volatile in the markets with some of the bankruptcies that you had mentioned and questions about three arrows, three arrows capital and what other impact um, that firm's collapse might have. There was still real buoyancy because a lot of the markets, uh, a lot of the crypto markets were doing well. There were lots of new protocols coming on. There was still a lot of active development in the space, and 
there was also a lot of regulatory progress, particularly in the U.S. federal realm. Sam Bankman-Fried himself had donated over $100 million through his various funds into uh, campaigns for um, mostly for Democrats, but some for, for Republicans as well. And it seemed like there was a lot of momentum with potentially passing federal legislation that could really be a game changer for the U.S. regulation of crypto. And part of the biggest rug, so to speak, of the FTX collapse was not only all of the negative impact to retail and other investors and users of FTX and Alameda Research's products, but it was also from a U.S. regulatory perspective, because whereas Sam Bankman-Fried came in and talked a big talk and really showed up with those campaign contributions, that a lot of politicians who had been either completely ignorant, total blank slate, just learning about crypto, so neutral, or maybe positively inclined, now felt real pressure to double down and retrench on that consumer protection and anti-crypto messaging. And so I think from a U.S. federal regulatory perspective, um, Sam Bankman-Fried's activities there really set the clock back because overall, I think the Hill was turning more crypto positive in um, Q2, Q3 of of 2022, and that there could have been more momentum, more momentum to go further positive. And then when everything crashed and it appeared that there was widespread fraud throughout FTX and Alameda Research, then that turned the tide back to not only are we relatively ignorant about what crypto can do or what the innovation of this technology means, but we're now less inclined to want to learn or to be supportive. And to the extent that there were certain lawmakers who were already negatively inclined towards crypto, that really gave them momentum to say, there's no real use case here. Um, Crypto is just a massive fraud perpetuated on uh, U.S. retail, um, which certainly is not true and not a, a nuanced perspective or even a holistic perspective. But unfortunately, those headlines about those frauds or or those scams, and especially given the scale of F, of FTX's fraud, that tended to dictate the the conversation in a lot of ways, casting a pall over those policy conversations at both the federal and state levels for the past year. But 
I think much less interesting than the fraud. I think that there are two really key takeaways from FTX's collapse and relevant to its bankruptcy. So one is that we need regulatory clarity onshore so that we don't push these major businesses offshore. Um, FTX was run in a different way than the FTX US was run in a different way than FTX Global. And having that onshore um, certainly was in a different regulatory posture than um, um, FTX Global in the Bahamas. And we weren't able to see, the regulators weren't able to see the overall interconnectedness in ways that were not only unhealthy or poor corporate governance, but turned out to be fraudulent. But the second piece, which I think is actually more interesting, is Alameda's DeFi counterparties were all made whole because of the way that the DeFi over-collateralization of those transactions works within the DeFi protocol. So as soon as the conditions were no longer met for Alameda to be able to meet its side of trades, all of its counterparties were made whole. It's almost like they were the, the secured creditors coming first in the bankruptcy. And so... The fraud story is very similar to any other financial services fraud story, but what's much more interesting is this financial technological innovation that allows for a different type of interaction that actually could help to mitigate risk. And thinking about ways in which to promote that technology should actually be the focus of the regulators. Yeah, so I mean, I just also wanted to mention here that besides obviously being a major crypto exchange, FTX was also once a major player in the distress space as a purchaser of distressed crypto assets. It famously approved, uh, was approved as a purchaser in the Voyager sale. Obviously, that fell through, but it did leave a lot of instability and uncertainty behind in this space as well. Uh, I, and I'm not quite sure how to ask this question, but if you could indulge our listeners, I think you touched upon it briefly. Um, <clears throat> can you talk about some of the red flags that people may have been able to see in FDX prior to the bankruptcy filing? I think it's tough because part of fraud is obfuscation and it, was a relatively small, relatively early stage. I mean, its last fundraise, I believe, was in uh, early 2022 and was only a Series C, even though its valuations were so high. And so in terms of the overall volume of kind of due diligence that any potential investor could do, there wasn't necessarily the kind of reams of of materials that that one would expect from a later stage company and and I've heard that there were active steps to conceal what was actually going on at the company, even at that round. Like there were different um, financials that were circulated to potential investors that at the time um, did not accurately reflect the financial health of the company. Um, 
at the time, there were lots of um, fundraises where there were potentially inflated valuations and investments were happening really quickly. And so those things happening with FTX weren't necessarily materially different than other types of fundraises for other crypto companies at the time. Um, but it's easy to say, looking back, oh, they should have seen this or they should have seen that. Um, but at the time, I don't think that anyone fully appreciated how interconnected FTX, Alameda Research, and how how interconnected FTX and Alameda Research were and what impact the FTT token was going to have on both of those businesses. Right. So moving along to more, I guess, bankruptcy adjacent topics and one that you've brought up here already and probably one that takes up a lot of your time this is this issue of predictability in the crypto markets can you give us an overview of where we are today in the u.s uh, from a legal landscape sure so there are two metrics for this so part of it is what's happening in the courts and there's part of it is what's happening in the legislative branch and the third piece, which is like the regulatory gloss that crosses both of those. So taking the judiciary first, there have been a number of actions where the SEC has been incredibly aggressive in terms of how it's been enforcing or seeking to enforce the securities laws against various participants in the digital assets space. And there have been a number of recent losses by the SEC. So earlier this summer in the district court for the Southern District of New York, in the Ripple case, the judge there ruled that as a matter of law, XRP is not a security and that the terms at which XRP was sold maybe is an investment contract under the securities laws, but it's a very fact-specific determination. And just a couple of weeks later, right down the hall, a different court in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New Jersey came to a different conclusion in Terraform Labs about whether those those sales were in fact investment contracts. But importantly, even though he reached that alternative conclusion, that judge, Judge Rakoff, also held that the tokens themselves are not inherently securities. And so the fact that you got two of those back to back, even though they even though those cases ultimately reached different conclusions about the ultimate investment contracts under which those tokens were sold, it really made clear that the tokens themselves are not securities. And that has a material impact for how the SEC can regulate secondary market sales of those tokens overall. Um, but there were more losses still to come for the SEC in Ripple. So the first 
was ruling that XRP was not a security. The second was when uh, the judge denied the SEC's bid for an interlocutory appeal. And then the third came just a couple of weeks ago when the SEC decided to drop its case against the Ripple founders, um, Garlinghouse and Larson. And that's a material strategy pivot because it's, it's clearer. I think that the takeaway there is the SEC is trying to run at an appeal as quickly as they can. And so if they drop the case against the founder individuals, then they don't have to go to trial on those claims and they can automatically um, proceed that much quicker to getting to a final decision at the district court level with respect to any other outstanding claims and then quickly move to appeal. Um, So that seems to me that the SEC is feeling itself much more on the defensive there. Um, The other, there are two other places where the SEC um, has been um, chastised really by by the courts, and this time in two different U.S. courts of appeals. So in one, in the Grayscale um, uh, Bitcoin e- ETF case, the the U.S. District Court for the excuse me, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit um, denied ruled that the denial of Grayscale's proposal um, to convert its flagship Bitcoin trust into a spot Bitcoin ETF was arbitrary and capricious because the commission failed to explain its different treatment of similar products. And then just last week, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit held that the SEC's stock buyback disclosure rule was arbitrary and capricious. So in lots of different ways, the judiciary is really questioning the SEC's enforcement approach, not only with crypto, but also with respect to other rules. And it's that posture that I think makes the legislative efforts even more important. And so there are a number of bills working their way through Congress. Um, There's FIT21, um, which is a comprehensive regulation of crypto for both securities and commodities. And then there's also a separate piece of stablecoin legislation that has gotten a fair amount of momentum that could really help provide some clarity for industry. And then at the state level, there are a number of states that either have recently passed licensing regimes for digital asset providers or are in the process of designing those. And so there's a bit of an interplay and a bit of a race between how the courts are going to view the legal interpretations of the government while the legislators are putting forth new frameworks for how the digital asset space can operate. So what do you think the next, I guess, six months to a year look from um, this legal and regulatory perspective that you were just talking about? I think there will be some more helpful and decisive court victories for crypto. I think that 
the cases against Coinbase, the cases against Binance, and the cases against Ripple will continue to proceed through the courts. And we can get some additional clarity from the judiciary with some further guidance in those matters. And I also think that leading up to the real heart of the 2024 presidential election cycle, we'll see a lot more activity on uh, Capitol Hill in terms of being able to advance legislation. Um, I think it's more likely that the stablecoin bill actually makes it through than the Fit 21 Act. I think um, there's a lot of momentum and um, consensus and collaboration across the aisle with respect to the stablecoin bill. Um, But it'll be interesting to see if um, we can get more momentum for that Fit 21 um, bill to get more momentum and really move the conversation, um, even if the bill itself is not likely to pass. So we've talked a lot about the U.S., I guess, but let's bring in foreign jurisdictions that may be further along. Uh, And I imagine here there are jurisdictions that may be more favorable to formal registration of crypto. Uh, Companies and exchanges of Bahamas, for example. Uh, And uh, I imagine there are also jurisdictions that have more developed regulations, requirements specific to crypto to protect customers and creditors like like Japan, for example. Can you give us a brief overview as to where that stands today and maybe also what impact um, does the fact that these jurisdictions may be further along uh, than the U.S., what that may mean for the U.S. markets? Sure, and that's a great question. There are most of the major economies in the world, like most of the other economies within the G20, have already passed some sort of crypto regulatory regime. Um, The biggest and most comprehensive is the EU's MICA. Um, And that really was the first fully comprehensive regulation of digital assets and digital asset service providers. And that formally passed um, earlier this year, but it had been pretty much well, well baked uh, last year, and it will come into effect at the end of 2024. And in the meantime, the EU continues to work on refining regulations and thinking about where the rubber is really going to meet the road in terms of implementation of that. And that level of clarity across one of the most important financial networks and markets in the world, I think will be a real boon for crypto because it enables innovators to understand the rules of the game as they are offering new products to consumers. And there are other markets around the world that are also either in the process of developing or refining their crypto regulatory frameworks. So there's a lot of exciting developments coming out of the United Kingdom now that in a lot of ways 
using the EU's example and building off of it in ways that make sense for the UK markets and customers. Um, And then on the other side of the world, you have uh, countries like Singapore and Japan that you mentioned that had been at the forefront of digital asset regulation and uh, now are looking to further refine those those regulations that they had on the books to make sure that they are protecting customers. And you even have markets like Hong Kong, where they're trying to welcome crypto founders and build a crypto hub with clarifying not only the regulations, but also making it so that crypto companies have access to banking and um, other products and services that they need to grow their businesses. So you see different economies all over the world really trying to become crypto hubs because they want to attract founders, they want to attract innovators, and they see the value in being able to build out those ecosystems. And I think for the United States, that should be a real threat, not only from an an international competitiveness issue in terms of the U.S. being able to maintain U.S. dollar hegemony in terms of being the world's select reserve and settlement currency, but also from a national security perspective. Um, If we are architecting the future of financial market infrastructure offshore, it's going to be very difficult for the U.S. to regulate, for the U.S. to um, shape it according to U.S. values and objectives, and also going to be very difficult to make sure that it remains secure and accessible um, in ways that we would want for all of U.S. retail customers. So I think that we've learned this lesson in terms of the risks of offshoring technology with respect to semiconductors, for example, it becomes very difficult to onshore that. Or even the risks of having something like social media, where there's lots of consumer data and consumer privacy questions, and also just control over what sort of content consumers are able to view in terms of the concerns that the U.S. government has around TikTok and um, questions about what access the Chinese government has to all of that information. And so it seems like if the U.S. government can appreciate the potential risks of social media being offshore, they would really take heart the risks of financial products and financial market infrastructure being offshore. And where do state regulatory schemes fit in this overall landscape? It's a great question. And I think one that sometimes gets overlooked. I think part of the reason why financial product innovation in the U.S. can be really challenging is because there is such a morass of regulatory schemes, not only at the federal level, where there's a full alphabet soup of different regulators that can regulate a particular product or service, especially if it doesn't fit neatly within a traditional financial product bucket, 
But then you also have state regulators who either have a statutory role to play in how financial services are provided to their citizens or who have enterprising uh, attorney generals who want to be aggressive in protecting consumers um, from folks who are doing business in their state. And so for founders and for operating companies, it can become very onerous and expensive to try to comply with this broad patchwork of regulation as each state develops its own unique regime um, that deals with digital assets. Um, I mean, even traditional um, payment services providers have dealt with this for a long time, where each state has its own money transmitter licensing regime. And there are certain states that have banded together and have agreed um, to have more of a passport um, within their borders. There's about 28 states who have agreed to that, but it's only 28 states and doesn't include some major markets. And so now that California has passed its comprehensive uh, digital asset regulatory regime and New York continues to hone and refine its regulatory regime, and there are other states with major markets that are contemplating their own digital asset licensing and regulatory regimes like Illinois, Texas, New Jersey, Massachusetts, then in order for an innovator to operate and to be able to serve customers in all of those jurisdictions simultaneously can become a very complicated proposition from a regulatory perspective. I think it's also worth noting that the bankruptcy process too has suffered uh, from the same uncertainty in the industry, I, I, it's appeared in different forms, but it's been particularly crucial to the bankruptcy sales and auction process. Uh, it's really behind the scrutiny involving a bidder's ability to close a sale, but also as part of calculating the closing risks of a sale. And we've seen it in Voyager, obviously, where after the failed FDX purchase, the company proceeded with the sale to Binance. It was approved by the bankruptcy court. And the bankruptcy court, by the way, was very critical of the SEC, which at the time had said that the agency believed uh, that Binance was operating in an unregistered security exchange. But the court took particular issue with the fact that the SEC actually failed to present any evidence, at least not back then. Um, and then following the appeal of that order approving the sale, Binance ultimately stepped away what was supposed to be, I believe, a $1.3 billion sale. Uh, I, we're also seeing it now in Celsius, where uh, the New York Bankruptcy Court asked the SEC to hopefully move quickly in deciding whether it will authorize a Chapter 11 plan. Uh, Celsius basically contemplates transforming itself into a Bitcoin mining firm. So we've seen it play out there, too. Um, and slightly different ways. Um, I have one last question. Maybe we're almost out of time to maybe take a step back uh, here and bring it back to the stress space a bit. Uh, to what extent do you think, <laughs> we've talked about companies in bankruptcy, but to what extent do you think bankruptcy can be successful and helpful here in this space? 
um, what we've seen so far, maybe what we'll see in the future. I think ultimately bankruptcy is meant to help companies and help creditors. And particularly if those creditors are retail consumers, then that gives the entire space room to breathe. So if companies that get into trouble can efficiently move through a bankruptcy process and not have to deal with those examples, Nikki said, that you mentioned, or even last week in Genesis's bankruptcy, the way in which the New York Attorney General's suit influenced them to change their bankruptcy plan. And that creates broader uncertainty and extends the timeline for when the consumers who were potentially harmed in the events that led to the bankruptcy, it delays when they can get relief. And it is in everyone's interest that the bankruptcy process can operate as quickly and as orderly as it can to either reorganize or to distribute the assets of the bankruptcy estate and allow the consumers to be made as close to whole as possible um, and keep the ecosystem moving. Like in FTX, for example, as different assets have been sold off from the bankruptcy estate to create greater liquidity for um, those creditors, there have been broader impact to the price of certain assets within the digital asset markets, just based on the size of, of FTX's holdings. So the more time we have to create this very orderly and secure and predictable wind down process, the less volatility it creates in the market overall, and the better it is for everyone to clear out the ideas that didn't work and make room for the innovators who are really building the future of financial markets and technology. Well, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, thank you so much, Emily, for being here with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So excellent conversation as always. Welcome back. Listeners, this is the portion of the State of Distress Dead podcast where we dig into names more deeply uh, here with the Bloomberg Intelligence team. So let's lead off with a name that we've already sort of alluded to and talked to a little bit. Let's start with Rite Aid. So Nagisa, you're on deck. Uh, I, I mean, this was one that was kind of a long time coming, it feels like, but they finally succumbed. Uh, so what are we seeing here in the early days? Sure. So they filed for bankruptcy on October 15th. In New Jersey, so New Jersey again becoming a prominent bankruptcy venue uh, for these large bankruptcies. Uh, and uh, from the beginning, I think a lot will depend on uh, a speedy sale process, but also achieving wide consensus among uh, all constituents. Um, so this includes both uh, holders of funded debt, of course, but also litigation cl uh, claimants. Uh, this clearly uh, it was clear from the beginning, this isn't a company that really can afford to stay in bankruptcy for a lengthy amount of time. Um, 
what brought them there? Well, $4 billion of debt, um, around $200 million in annual interest expenses, uh, approaching debt maturities. So all of that landscape, uh, obviously there's opioid litigation and all that, but uh, that, that wasn't a big component of companies, at least the company's first day presentation. So there's a lot of focus on debt, a lot of focus on uh, completing the sales. Uh, they came in with a dip with $3.25 billion of dip, but important to note, only $200 million of that was new money. The rest was, uh, the vast majority of it was part of this, what they called a creeping roll-up uh, that's pending to entry of a final order. Um, so very much again depends on how much time this company spends in bankruptcy. Uh, it for for now there's a focus on uh, the Elixir sale. Uh, there's uh, the company filed with committed strategic bidder by Med Impact Healthcare Systems as a potential stock stocking horse offer. Um, so it's pursuing that completion. Uh, and another component is the sale of their remaining retail operations that absent a successful sort of bidding process, the senior secured note holders will be able to credit bid on that part and, ef and effectuate the sale through the Chapter 11 process. Uh, in the first day of the case and continuing the first few weeks since, a key element of it has been the disputes and challenges with McKesson and ultimately the settlement with McKesson. Uh, that settlement elevates payments for post-petition goods uh, to super priority administrative claim status. Uh, it's important in many ways. One, it highlights uh, Rite Aid's reliance on McKesson's for its supply of pharmaceutical products. Uh, but also more broadly, it also highlights the risk and uncertainty of non-payment to suppliers as these companies navigates bankruptcy. Uh, under the deal, Rite Aid's agreed to pay McKesson within seven days of receiving post-petition goods. Mm. Uh, that amount, again, will have the super priority administrative expense cl uh, claim status be senior to all the rest of administrative claims in the Chapter 11. and. Um, even though, I mean, we know to, to approve a Chapter 11 plan, you have to pay administrative claims in full, but administrative insolvency is certainly not unheard of. And especially, as I mentioned, there's with only $200 million in new money, that threat becomes uh, even more real the more the longer the company lingers in Chapter 11. Um the, again, McKesson very important to Rite Aid. Uh, they McKesson received about nine billion dollars in payment from Rite Aid in two thousand and twenty-three. Um, Rite Aid's restructuring depends on this relationship moving smoothly. But important to know that the opposite is necessarily true. Uh, given the value of business that McKesson does, I don't know, I forget exactly the number, but it's many multiples of the nine billion that Rite Aid paid to it. McKesson doesn't necessarily heavily rely on Rite Aid for its existence, so we have that imbalance too that plays a role and certainly may have played a role in this settlement. Yeah, and I mean, it'd be interesting to watch certainly on the retail side as well because, I mean, whether you're talking CVS or Walgreens, et cetera, you know, tough environment for all parties concerned, uh, at least judging by stock prices and whatnot. So maybe we stay with our active filers, and, and Phil, let's bring you in here, Acumen. Uh, one of your near and dear. What, what's going on there? 
Yeah, so Acumen was somewhat of a surprise. Um, you know, this is a company that their latest 10Q, uh, unlike a lot of filers, um, you know, had no going concern language uh, concerns. So it looks like, you know, they they were proactive in in filing here. Uh, first off, it's a radio radiology services provider. So, you know, when you go for a CAT scan, BET scan, they also have an oncology uh, services uh, arm as well. Um, and, you know, what's unique here is that uh, they received a proposal in July from one of their creditors that sort of blew their socks off. Um, it was like, uh, it's from Stone Peak. Uh, they owned $470 million of unsecured notes that was behind, um, you know, like I, I think about a billion dollars or close to a billion dollars of secured debt. And what they did was basically said, we'll put up new money. Um, this was all negotiated, you know, in, in July. So when they were on their uh, second quarter call, um, negotiations were probably taking place. But ultimately, um, they're putting in new money here and they're equitizing $470 million of unsecured notes and they're rolling all of the secured debt or taking it out. So that kind of offer would seem to be really compelling to the secured creditors here. Um, and so it filed as a prepack um, with all the support that it, it would need. Um, it's trying to get in and out within 45 days. Um, I anticipate that it, it will be somewhat successful in that. The only opposition I could imagine is perhaps equity. And equity's argument might be this is a, this is a little fast um, and it was surprising. Um, but you know the board the, the board set up a special committee and it was negotiated. So I you know I I have a feeling that it you know and and typically the response to any equity complaining is like, well, do you have a better offer? Do you have something different? And I don't think that's going to be the case. Um, one of the interesting things here from Stone Peak's perspective, and this is perhaps an argument is there was uh stone peak was on the hook for another 350 million dollars of uh this unsecured note it was a actual facility that could be drawn and i the, the co company and all its sec filings would keep saying it, it could be drawn under certain conditions put air quotes on that under certain conditions around that and oh, what we un what's unclear is was that part of the leverage here they're putting in $130 million of new money. Is that, you know, from their perspective, is that a lot less than $350 million of unsecured notes that perhaps would have been wiped out later on? So, um, but I, you know, looking at some of the conditions, it didn't look like, um, it didn't look like these conditions existed. So it didn't look like they would actually be on the hook, but you never really know, um, what's uh, being discussed behind the curtains. So uh, we'll, we'll, we, we will see uh, how, how this proceeds, uh, you know, in bankruptcy. Interesting. So I guess one of the, the questions I'd have there sort of just as a follow on, and this would be to both of you, uh, do we get a sense in terms of whether some of these uh, maybe more aggressive or more opportunistic filings are sort of in the cards, just given the rates backdrop and stuff like that? I mean, that would seem to be a driver in terms of maybe there being a little less 
latitude for the financial engineering that has sort of postponed uh, perhaps the inevitable for a lot of these companies in the past. Although, uh, as you referenced, we do have Lumen sort of out there uh, uh, testing the concept. But uh, is there a sense in terms of whether the current macro is is maybe you know going to drive more of this kind of behavior? Yeah, well, I can tell you for Acumen specifically that the, uh, coupons and interest payments were a big consideration. Uh, they they have been picking an 11% note. Um, well, I guess it was 11%, but th- they were picking at a 13% rate. Uh, and that was going to go cash pay in September, that $470 million. So that, w- that was... <laughs> That was a big catalyst, and they had been well aware of it uh, on previous conference calls. Um, this is this is something that we're going to continue to see. I mean, the, the, all these companies are having problems. What we're what we are seeing is that, and you know, we've seen it uh, with WeWork. We've seen it with Carvana. Um, they their their debt is staying outstanding, but a lot a big portion of it is pick. They're just picking it uh, as opposed to actually paying their coupons, which, you know, generally isn't unsustainable if you don't like really dramatically grow your uh, bottom line. Since you mentioned we work there, I know that's sort of on your list of, of names that are of interest at that point. So maybe we just stick on that. Uh, I, I mean, they've, they've been doing their darndest, I guess, to, to stay out of the courts here. Uh, are they going to be able to? Well, what's interesting, Noel, is we are talking on Friday, November 3rd, and they put out (laughs) they might be filing next week and we are publishing uh, next week. So they might actually be sitting in Chapter 11 when this is uh, being listened to by our listeners. So I'm just going to focus on some of the key points here that aren't going to change. The leases here are the big liability. There's twenty five billion dollars of payments that it's committed to. Um, th- on the balance sheet, the present value of that is $14.1 billion. They're using an 11% discount rate reflecting you know, what their incremental borrowing cost is. And that's over a duration, an average weighted duration of uh, 11 years. <laughs> so that's, that's the big liability. Um, then you have $1.5 billion of first lien debt and that of that 776 or thereabout is uh, owned by SoftBank. Um, and then you also have some institutional investors in that first lien debt. Um, and then you have 900 million of second lien and $500 million of third lien and unsecured notes. So really, if, we're, if WeWork's restructuring and it's in chapter 11, it's really all about what are the first lien lenders going to cut? Because remember, all of that value, I mean, there's no real collateral here. It's really just the lease portfolio. And it, it, it so, so you really have a tough, uh, you know, it, the, the collateral here will be the IP, um, the WeWork brand and that sort of thing. Um, the, the other point I'd like to make here is chapter 11 is effective in North America, but not so much overseas. And so, when you think of WeWork, only 38% of its revenue is from North America. So, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, so that kind of changes the dynamic for how you're restructuring. Uh, generally speaking, in Chapter 11, uh, when the company, prim- most of its operations are in North America, 
you tend to leave your foreign subs alone because that brings uncertainty that you really don't want to have to deal with in bankruptcy um, if you can. But, you know, if if there's bad leases overseas, this is the right time to sort of like, you know, do that heavy lifting. So you might see some interesting um, dynamics in terms of uh, restructuring. And they certainly, and this is the last point I'd like to make, they certainly have the board of directors to understand restructuring. Uh, it really, they, I think they added four new directors, all of them with really deep restructuring experience, um, you know, former bankruptcy attorneys, former uh, uh, financial advisors to restructuring companies and former uh, operating officers, chief CROs, uh, you know, in big names, big complex names including the CEO, uh, David Tolley, who, who was the CRO uh, for Intelsat when that restructured. And that had, you know, well over $10 billion of debt. And notably, K&E, Kirkland Analysis, the debtors here, and PJT, who also worked with Tolley in, um, in Intelsat, they're, they're, they are uh, representing the company as well. Um, the company has already indicated, or at least news reports are, that it will also file in New Jersey. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Go New Jersey! Oh. Yes. Whoop, whoop. Uh, Garden baby. State, baby. Yeah, they, absolutely. Um, and so <laughs> it, it'll be fascinating to see uh, the dynamic between SoftBank, which has put in over $10 billion funding effectively operating losses for this uh, um very large cap company. Um, it's got, you know, ver versus the institutional investors. And, you know, we've identified a few of those because of holdings and, uh, you know, and equity holdings, um, capital research, King Street, uh, BlackRock, SEI and Brigade. So it'll be interesting to see that the dynamic between institutional credit investors like those versus uh, SoftBank, which is wildly unpredictable and generally has a, an aversion to having their companies go through bankruptcy, but we'll see. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting overall because as you mentioned, I mean, you're, you're kind of an asset light organization. So, and I'm not sure that the IP is particularly unique or, or difficult to replicate, uh, but Maybe let's change gears here, Nagisa, bring you back into the conversation. Uh, I want to talk about Incor uh, uh, and their up-tier transaction, because as you alluded to, that's sort of a, a thing we've been seeing a little bit more of. So uh, what's the latest on Incor? Sure. So this is one of um, those classic up-tier transactions cases in Texas Bankruptcy Court. This is taking place just months after that court blessed the CERDA up-tier transaction. And up until October 13th, it was also in front of the same judge, Judge Davis Jones. Uh, the case has since been transferred to Judge Marvin Esker after his uh, resignation. Uh, I think uh, that, uh, so we have Encora, its equity sponsor, Platinum, Platinum Equity, um, as well as PIMCO and Silverpoint from the not holders that uh, are facing legal challenges to this 2022 um, F2 transaction that are brought by JP Morgan, BlackRock, and other note holders that were excluded from the exchange. Um, we are in an uncommon territory here. We have a decision that will largely depend on oral argument that took place 
just days before Judge Jones's resignation, there was talk about potentially re-arguing the case, but that seems that it's not, that's unlikely at this point. Um, and uh, what we're dealing with here is uh, in, in Cora, to just go to the basics of what happened in 2022, received the request required majority vote to pursue an initial change to the indentures that uh, authorized a 250 million of additional secure notes that would be due in 2026. Then the company, in, including these new notes in the tally, uh, went and obtained more than two-thirds of the votes that were required to release the collateral under the original secured indentures. Uh, thereby rendering the previously secured notes unsecured. So that's sort of in the gist. That's what happened here. Uh, and what we're left with are the is the question of whether these transactions, these two steps basically, violate the indentures. Um, and a lot of that really depends on whether we're viewing this as a whole. So these transactions as one. Do you actually? We ask. Do you actually collapse these two steps into one? And say that, well, prior to this 250 million of additional notes, Incora didn't have the required two thirds to release the collateral. Or do you look at each step individually and say that, well, nothing was violated here because these two individual steps that the company took first authorizing 250 million additional notes and then counting those notes to release the collateral, those two steps individually were allowed under the indentures. Um, I think. Personally, I think that given how mindful generally the Texas Bankruptcy Court has been towards uh, the exact language of these documents and also how accepting it has generally been, at least the lower court, the bankruptcy court, uh, of companies engaging in pre-bankruptcy transactions to resolve or address some financial need, uh, not necessarily harm the, sh the note holders. I think that Incora and its sponsor and... Uh, PIMCO and SilverPoint have a good chance here. Um, I I think it's it, 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 it's well explained that this was a transaction that was really designed to combat this liquidity constraints back in 2022. Obviously, it didn't do a good job of doing that. But um, I, and I think as was the case in Serda, uh, the fact that objecting note holders attempted to negotiate their own position that would call them, I guess, in that court position in hands in transaction to the exclusion of these currently participating note holders may also probably be relevant to the court. Um, I think another layer that's interesting here that uh, I want to mention is this really this concept of the remedies. Um, I think that even if JP Morgan and BlackRock and others are successful in convincing the court that this transaction as a whole bridged the indentures, I, I think we're dealing with questions as to what the re what relief may look like, and I think it's unlikely that they would be granted equitably relief to rank them ahead of the uh, of the rest. That's what that's what they're asking for. Judge Jones signaled uh, during the oral argument that at best we we may have a situation that all creditors become unsecured. Uh, objecting note holders are seeking to equitable liens. That's a very hard remedy to get, very unlikely. Um, 
specifically, even if there's this contractual breach, I think that the court is really unlikely to grant this. I, one of the reasons why it's unlikely to grant equitable liens is because the motivation behind this this transaction, as I mentioned, is this uh, need to address the financial situation the company was in. Um, Timing-wise, it's interesting here because of the change in judges. I don't expect this to take too long. I think we may likely have a decision that comes out before the end of the year. Uh, I don't want to downplay how strange this is. There's a lot of uncertainty <laughs> here. It's not often to see a case decided based on oral argument in front of a different judge that's now resigned. I think it's also worth noting, though I'm not sure what it means, is that this was an uh, oral argument that lasted about 10 hours yeah. with very, very little questioning, uh, which is somewhat surprising the way this go. But that's also kind Nikisa, of an element of this. Nikki, so I have a question for you. Um, yes. If you you have this creditor on creditor violence, you have these exchanges, you know, we, we've seen these aggressive liability management transactions happen. Have you seen that there is a jurisdiction that, you know, for the righteous, indignant, you know, unsecured note holder who feels that he was like, I mean, is there there a bankruptcy jurisdiction that seems to be listening to them? Because as I think about it, I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head going, it seems like a lot of it's being waved off, you know, to these sophisticated investors. I'm wondering if you have any, you know, feelings like... so the bankruptcy court is definitely a good place to be if you're defending these transactions, clearly. I mean, they a lot of this with CERDA started out in New York State Court, I believe, uh, and and the bankruptcy court went against those rulings. And uh, so it, it's, it's definitely where you want to be. I mean, so was in Cora. There was a lot of... Uh, movement at the beginning of the case to take this uh, issues away from the New York courts and put them in front of Judge Jones. Uh, so it's definitely the place where you want to be. I mean, if you read through Judge Jones's Serta's decision, there's a lot of very uh, just flowery language in support of this arrangements and how, and particularly like really stressing how we're looking at this arrangement coming out years after, even months after, but let's not forget the fact that this party is opposing this, this note holders opposing this, were also the ones that proposed their own version of this arrangement that they just ultimately failed. They didn't win. It's just the name of the game. Nothing strange happened here. But one thing though, I mean, CERDA is up to the Fifth Circuit now, so we do not know what happens beyond the bankruptcy courts. That's yet to be seen. It's not, it wouldn't be surprising if the higher courts see this in a different lens and maybe they're less receptive of these. In New York, Delaware, um, you know, and those two also seem to follow the same form. Like we saw in New York, Revlon, um, certainly, you know, that there was some structural difficulties, you know, that they needed to get by and you know, standing got, issue primarily, right. yeah, and, and, and they got blessed, and then and then Delaware, we've seen, you know, in, in Goldblatt, I forget the name of the, uh, but there was a similar thing. Uh, yeah, I, I forget the name too, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so bankruptcy courts, yes, but I mean, New York State courts, and that the, the, they've had a different take on this for sure. Yeah, so it's interesting. As soon as you feel like you might be losing in New York State court, that's the time to file. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway. All right, very, uh, very uplifting uh, 
thing on that. Um, I, I, right. I, guess, so, so, I, I, I guess the main point there is uh, that it is still very much the Wild West and uh, secured creditors, unsecured creditors, creditors. Righteous and indignant. Yeah, Brothers. they, they well, yeah. no, those, oh, those are the indignants. Yeah, they're going to be the okay. quiet ones, and no one really <laughs> cares about them. So it's it'll it'll be the uh, it'll be everyone else who's uh, kind of dictating the terms here, which kind right. of goes in line with what we heard from uh, you know Chris Hansen when he was interviewing with us. Is that a lot of this is reverse inquiry, and uh, you know, yeah. So, yep. anyway. and so for people that are interested in that conversation, certainly look at the uh, library of State of the Distressed Debt podcast, where we've got many great guests, lots of great information. But let's uh, continue with uh, the course that we're on here. Nagisa, back to you. Hertz, uh, I can't believe we're still talking about this, but I guess we are. Uh, Hertz, post-petition interest, make whole premium appeal. Uh, something's going on there. What is that? Yeah, so this is an exciting one. Um, this has <laughs> been a long time in the making. I swear it is. Uh, <laughs> so I'm with Nagisa on this one. It is very exciting. I'm righteous and indignant, so I don't know what I am. <laughs> so this is the third circuit appeal brought by holders of nearly $2 billion of debt of her senior nodes. There are two issues, as you said, post-petition interest and make-all premiums. Uh, with respect to post-petition interest, uh, I, I think that they may have convinced the three-judge panel to a circuit that includes, by the way, Judge Ambra, a prominent bankruptcy lawyer, uh, someone who's very attentive to these issues. Um, and they may be able to reverse the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Delaware uh, and get about $125 million in post-petition interest at the higher contractual rate instead of the federal judgment rate. Uh, that's what we're talking about here. And if that's the case, then the Third Circuit would join the Fifth and Ninth Circuits in holding that unimpaired, unsecured creditors of a solvent debtor are entitled to post-petition interest at the contract rate. Uh, to go back a year, we have, uh, in more than a year, uh, we have Hertz's plan that uh, treated, uh, purported to treat all creditors as unimpaired, as well as distributed more than, famously distributed more than a billion dollars in value to pre-petition equity claimants. Um, alongside that, uh, at the same time, the bankruptcy court held that the interest to be paid to note holders, these unsecured note holders, should be based on the lower federal judgment rate, not the contract rate. This is particularly significant here and why this case is taking so long and it's going through the appeal process uh, because the federal judgment rate back then was just 0.15%. That's compared to interest rates under this indentures ranging from 5.5 to just over 7%. So it's a big difference. Um, in holding that post-petition interest needs to be paid only the federal judgment rate, the bankruptcy court relied heavily on section 726 of the bankruptcy code, particular section A5. And not to get too technical, but this section- I think you already have, so just- I'm, just I'm sorry, I'll just stay <laughs> just a little bit longer because it is important. But it's so basically- Section A class two paragraph one- <laughs> No, if you read it, A five is a hoot. <laughs> so it it so it guides, generally speaking, this whole section guides the property of the estate, the distribution of property of state. But this particular one refers to payment of post petition interest at the legal rate, which admittedly courts do often agree that it's referring to the federal judgment rate. But again, we just have this term called the legal rate; it's not well defined there either. 
However, what we do know and what is widely accepted is that this section generally technically applies to impaired creditors. So we do think that the appeal courts will likely may reject reliance on this section because that uh, because it does generally apply to impaired creditors, and we're talking about unimpaired creditors here. Uh, there clearly isn't a specific code provision that applies specifically to payment of post-petition interest to unimpaired, unsecured creditors of a solvent debtor. Uh, and I think it's probably going to be under principles of equity that the Third Circuit may hold that, un- that this particular group, this is unimpaired, unsecured creditors of a solvent debtor, have the right to pay to to payment of post-petition interest under the contracts. Um, that's where we are with that. The make whole is a different issue. It's a bit more complicated procedurally. Uh, I think that it, the reversal of the bankruptcy court's disallowance of make whole premiums is probably harder in this case. Uh, there are four series of notes we're dealing with 2022 and 2024s. The bankruptcy court concluded that uh, the, the redemption, uh, the make whole redemption premiums were triggered. I think the Third Circuit will not disagree with that. I think the key, the more interesting here are the later two series, the 2026 and 2028. There could be a disagreement there, but the fact that that ruling, the disallowance of the make holds for those two series was based on a trial. So these were factual findings that the bankruptcy court decided that the formula for calculating the make hold premiums for these two series looks a lot or is tied to the unpaid interest of the notes, uh, the court disallowed the make premiums. I think the, the, this, I think the appeals court will have a hard time reversing that because of the factual finding nature of the bankruptcy court's ruling. Um, there are ways around it. I'm not going to get into those types like solvent debtor exception and whatnot, but I think the fact that this was done, uh, as part of a trial, I think may make it harder to reverse. Um, Timing-wise, uh, this oral argument took place October 25th. I think generally speaking, on average, there's maybe about five months for the Third Circuit to opinion. Could be less, could be a lot longer. Hard to say. Uh, but it will definitely be a thorough opinion when it comes out because these are issues that are very important to address and circuit courts have struggled with these for quite a while now. So this will be the Third Circuit opining on it. Interesting. So maybe sometime in the first quarter of next year. So with that, I mean, we're getting tight on time, but let's maybe wrap up, Phil, with you and our good old friend Diamond Sports. Now that the MLB season is concluded and the Texas Rangers have wasted the trophy and the NHL is getting underway, better way to celebrate it all than with Diamond Sports. Well, it's not a great thing about television watching. The fact that I found out the Rangers won the World Series from that bit right there from you. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, um, when it, I mean, in fairness, I mean, I do have family in Texas, so they were excited about it. But it, it, I suspect in the MLB front office, that was not the pairing they were hoping for in terms of drawing viewership. <laughs> no. Um so, so again, it's Friday, November 3rd. Um, there is a status conference on Monday, November 6th. So, uh, you know, I am I'm speaking to the listener right now, probably on the 7th or 8th. And uh, so much more might be known. But at this point, we are working with um, 
you know, there was a New York Post article yesterday uh, in which uh, apparently Sinclair and Bally's are putting forth an $850 million bid. This is rumored, nothing on the dockets yet. Um, and, you know, this certainly reads more like a settlement offer because a condition for them purchasing these uh uh, the sports rights agreements is that they dropped the lawsuit. Recall, this is a one and a half billion dollar lawsuit against Sinclair. Um, Bally's is also brought in on behalf because Bally's uh, provided a, a package of warrants and equity to Sinclair. Uh, and that went to the parent and it didn't go to Diamond Sports for the naming rights of Diamond Sports channels. So um, anyway, I did this. Look, we're, we're dealing with a, a rumored uh, bid, but th the bottom line is with Diamond Sports is it's not in it, it, this. This situation is deteriorating. Um, it is, uh, you know, I, I think the one side of the organization or actually the bankruptcy that seems to be going well for them is this one and a half billion dollar lawsuit. I think that'll probably be put into a litigation trust. I think. Um, you know, the debtors and the unsecured creditors committee seem to be working hand in hand in making sure that that uh, that seg that value is will be preserved and, uh, you know, have everything going for it. Um, and, uh, you know, that that's it's it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. But uh, in terms of reorganizing, um, MLB's made it clear that they would have preferred to uh, have get their rights back. And uh, we exclusivity is now uh, being questioned. Um, you know, the, the company had made its motion to extend exclusivity. Uh, there's also the debtors are making a motion to compel payment from DirecTV because DirecTV held back payments for uh, because they no longer had Arizona Diamondbacks nor uh, San Diego Padres uh, uh, telecast to Put on the air, so it's 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 not a pretty situation. Um, I think I guess we're going to be finding out more on Monday, and uh, <laughs> let's see. Talking to All the right. future here. There we go. All right. So with that, uh, we'd like to once again uh, thank Emily Myers for joining us or joining Nagisa for a conversation this month. And on behalf of myself, Nagisa, and Phil, thanks to our listeners once again. As always, this has been State of Distressed Debt.